Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Ron Renaud. Ron is the CEO of Lexington, Massachusetts-based Translate Bio. The company is working on messenger RNA therapies. You may have heard about this technology. mRNA molecules provide genetic instructions for making proteins. And the idea is that if you can restore functional proteins that for one reason or another have gone awry in a disease process, mRNA molecules might be a good way to do this. If you can inject mRNA directly into people, always a big if, then theoretically the cell machinery can be harnessed to essentially turn patients into their own mini drug factories. Now, while Moderna captures most of the attention in this subsector of biotech, pulling off the industry's biggest ever IPO in December of 2018, it's not the only game in town. Translate is developing assets that have been tested for more than a decade, stretching back to early stealthy work done at Shire, the rare disease company. Translate actually went public six months before Moderna. Ron comes to this juncture after a long and successful career on the business and finance side of the house. His biotech career took off at Amgen, and then he took a detour to Wall Street before coming back into executive leadership at Carex and Identix. Identix was a turnaround story that he left on a high note with a $3.85 billion acquisition by Merck. Ron is not a scientist, and he doesn't try to pose as one. The important thing is that if you are a biotech CEO who's a non-scientist, you had better be fluent in the scientific concepts, know the key questions to ask, and hire good people. Ron does all of that. Listening to him, I think you'll hear a certain amount of humility in his voice. That's a healthy thing. It was a pleasure to speak with Ron about his career arc, hear his thoughts on biotech management, and the industry's role within the society at large. Now, before we dive in, a word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech or to schedule a meeting at the upcoming JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, visit www.ppdbiotech.com slash longrun. I'll say that again. www.ppdbiotech.com slash longrun. And if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person. Over the course of a year, that's quite a bargain, if I don't say so myself. Group subscriptions, which include an internal sharing license, are available at a discount. For details, ask me at luke at timmermanreport.com. So 
So today with me, I have Ron Renaud. He's the CEO of Translate Bio, a messenger RNA therapeutics company based in Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh, welcome, Ron. Thanks for joining me on The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to have you on the show here today, Ron, because we've had some interesting conversations over the years about um, the science and strategy and company building, uh, lots of things uh, to cover. And I think your current company um, it, it provides an interesting uh, case to kind of dig into on, on a numerous aspects here. So, um, But uh, before we get there, as you know, with these uh, interviews, I like to start with a bit on the person. Um, so where, where does your journey begin? Where were you born and raised? So I was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, and raised in a small town right south of Worcester called, uh, called Grafton, Massachusetts. Uh, what pe- most people know Grafton for is it's, it's an exit off of the Massachusetts Turnpike. Uh, it's a little bit more popular now that there's a, an MBTA stop, but for, the more, for, for most of my childhood, uh, there were probably more farm animals than there were people in Grafton. Near Worcester, so this is kind of central Massachusetts. You think, how how far away from Boston? It's about forty-five miles west of Boston. What did your mom and dad do for a living? My dad was an electrical contractor. He uh, very early on he was in the in the Navy. was a uh, was a petty officer in the Navy. Was an electrician in the Navy, uh, and then my mom was a nurse. Uh, early in her career was an LPN. And then uh, an RN, uh, she got her RN uh, license a little bit later in life. Always worked with uh, patients with mental illness. Huh. Okay, so this sounds kind of like a a middle-class upbringing. Absolutely. Do you have any siblings? I have uh, a younger brother who lives in upstate New York. Uh, Interestingly, we were growing up, I always had an interest in the life sciences, and my brother was always more of a a businessman, and... uh, he, uh, it's, it's interesting. He, he followed his heart, stayed on the business side and, uh, and I followed my heart and stayed on the, on the life sciences side. But, but nonetheless, both of us still, uh, with a kind of a, a business thread, uh, between us. Interesting. So you say you always had an interest in life sciences. Where did that come from? I, from a very young age, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician and I, I had my heart set on going to medical school for the longest time. Uh, and I think, you know, all the way through elementary school, through middle school, through high school, I really migrated towards the science side of, of academics. Uh, when, I, when I got to college, I went in as a pre-med major. Unfortunately, there's an incredible weeding function uh, in pre, for pre-med majors called organic chemistry. Uh, some do very, very well at it. For me, that was the ultimate weeding function. Uh, so I switched after my sophomore year took most of my pre-med requirements, but switched over to uh, a psychology major and, uh, and then finished some of my prerequisites uh, after I was finished with college. Um, but I was, still, I was still very focused. Oh, that's a pretty big shift. I mean, from uh, you know, pre-med to psychology. Uh, did you know, did you have some idea? I mean, this is undergraduate time, right? But yes. what, what you might want to do with that later in life? Well, with psychology, at least it allowed me to stay with, with a little bit of a finger on the pulse of, of life sciences. And, and I, I, I still didn't lose the drive to, to think about medical school. And in fact, when I graduated from college, uh, my first job was at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Um, and I had an initial role as a facilitator in a brand spanking new 
breast cancer clinic. And shortly after that, I moved into more of a data manager role. But the nice thing is part of the Harvard system, while I was working at Dana-Farber, I was able to take classes at the Harvard Extension School. And so I was able to keep, you know, keep, keep current and, and, and stay focused on potentially going to medical school. But as I was doing work at the Dana-Farber, working with a number of just great physicians and researchers, I started to think about not only medical school, but whether or not uh, an advanced degree in one of the life sciences, a PhD in molecular biology made sense. Um, and so I, you know, I, I started to work down that path um, and then uh, ended up working in a lab with Dr. George Dimitri, uh, which really, really got me interested in, in you know, pursuing uh, you know, more of a, of, a, of a research focus. Well, uh, before we go too far here on um, your biotech journey, let's back up just quick on um, this college, St. Anselm College in New Hampshire. Uh, I, I had to look this up. I had to admit, I, I couldn't really find this one on a map. Uh, but uh, it's a small Catholic liberal arts school. Uh, interestingly, I saw that they... Uh, they say that they select students based not just on their academic record, but also on character. Um, I, I wonder what kind of place this was for you as a, you know, a student coming up. It was, uh, it was a great place. I, I loved my time at St. Anselm. I loved it so much that I've, you know, I've continued as a, as a member of the Board of Trustees there. That's, I think, probably the strongest testament to how much I enjoyed my time there. But it was... Um, you know, coming out of an all-boys Catholic high school in central Massachusetts, you have a guidance counselor that, that, that counsels you on, you know, where they think you would, you would have a good fit, where you would be a good fit. And there were a number of schools that I looked at, and um, St. Anselm was, was, was a college that, as soon as I stepped onto the campus, and this had to be in 1989 or 1990, I fell in love with it immediately, and uh, I loved every minute of my time there. It was it was a great academic experience, uh, and it was just a, it was a great life experience. I made some of the best friends of my life, uh, and then some of my advisors. In fact, my my advisor on you know with regard to my psychology degree is someone who remains a, a close friend even today. So you weren't crestfallen by you know organic chemistry that sophomore year <laughs> hardship. No, and, and, there no, there were other fact, things for you to do there. Absolutely. And in fact, my advisor, I, my senior thesis was on stress and the deterioration of the immune system. So for a psychology major, I, I still got to keep a pretty close, you know, a pretty close hand on the, on the life science side of things. Okay. So here we are. This, you graduate in about uh, 1990. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So you get this job at Dana-Farber. Uh, this allows you to um, kind of get your foot in the door uh, and, and keep your options open, as you were saying. Uh, where, um, how did you end up in George Dimitri's lab? Well, so my initial role was in a, a job called the facilitator, and this was in a brand new breast cancer clinic. And this more or less morphed into more of a data manager role on early breast cancer studies uh, with intensive chemotherapy. But all of these chemotherapy regimens were also being added to brand spanking new drugs like epigen. Nupagen. I got to work on the first phase one study of, of Herceptin, which at the time I can remember the cover of the protocol was just called anti-HER2, uh, and a few other early blockbusters for our industry. And so George was a, was, a, was a physician at the Farber at that time, a physician researcher, and he was working on a number of these trials. And like a number of the physicians at the Farber, they also had very active research labs. And one of George's early projects 
was in the area of, of hematopoiesis, so red blood cells, white blood cells. And he had a project that I was very familiar with from the data collection side, the data management side, and he knew that I was you know, very interested in pursuing something along the lines of uh, either a PhD or, or medical school, and he offered me uh, an opportunity to come work in his lab. And so I got to work on this, this hematopoiesis project, which, which, was, which was just terrific, and also gave me direct exposure to a number of the sponsors who were providing the funding for, funding for those trials. So this is a real job. You're, you're not in graduate school. What, what kind of work are you doing? So basically, I was doing what was called clonogenic assays. And so we had patients who were receiving high doses of chemotherapy uh, for, for, for the treatment of breast cancer. And the issue back in the day was, could you administer planned dose on time? So trying to get these patients to take their full doses of chemotherapy on the cycles that didn't allow for any delays. And this was in the very early days of, of, of blood growth factors, so white blood cells and red blood cells. And the project that we were working on was patients uh, often developed either anemia or neutropenia with their chemotherapy regimens. And especially with anemia, there was a significant impact on quality of life. And so what we were doing was analyzing whether or not you could give enough epigen to uh, maintain a quality of life for these women that were receiving these very intensive chemotherapy regimens and also allowing them to make sure that they didn't miss a dose or they didn't get dose delayed and they could get their planned doses of chemotherapy on time. And so what I was doing was I was really, I was looking at the, the blood of these breast cancer patients and looking at the amount of progenitor or early, early forms of the red blood cells uh, to see if, uh, if we were doing exactly, at least at a cellular level, what, uh, what, what we thought we were doing. Really interesting moment in biotech history here that you were able to bear witness to. I mean, so you've got this technical kind of job, but you're seeing the patients and the, the practical manifestation uh, of, you know, what it's like to get that high-dose chemotherapy and then the difference that those growth factors made. These were the two drugs that, uh, that made Amgen, Amgen <laughs> in the Absolutely. 90s, the epigen and neupogen, to stimulate the red and the white blood cells. So you're a young guy, you look at this and thought, huh, where, where did this come from? This is pretty exciting stuff, huh? Yeah, this, I mean, that's, Luke, that's spot on. I, I had the opportunity, especially in my time as a data manager, and then even working in the lab, to spend a lot of time with patients with cancer, especially with what we were focused on with breast cancer. I was down in the clinic quite a bit. The, phl the phlebotomist was drawing blood. I was down there often waiting for, uh, waiting for the tubes to be drawn, and I would sit and talk with the patients. And so you, you, you'd see kind of in real time what was happening, and you'd know what was going on in the, in the development of these patients, the, the disease. In some cases, you know, things were going really well. In some cases, they weren't going well. But either way, you know, you had a very good sense of what was happening. And when you'd go back up to the lab and I'd be under the hood and I'd be pipetting blood out and, you know, looking at, at cells under the microscope, counting, you know, progenitor cells, you couldn't help but play over and over in your mind that, you know, this is a patient, this is a situation that, you know, you're seeing in real time. And it was, uh, my, my four years of college were great, but my, my four years at the Dana-Farber were, were probably one of the most important learning experiences I've had in my entire life. 
Okay, so then how do you make the transition to get your, um, let's call it your, your graduate school degree in biotech? <laughs> so it was more exposure to work that was largely funded by a lot of these fast-growing biotechs. And so you're getting a flavor right now. I, I was spending a lot of time on the, on the red cells and the white cells. So while I was working in, in, in George Dimitri's lab, it happened to be just a horrible, cold, snowy December morning. And I got a call from a recruiter that asked me if I had any interest in doing clinical research. So what I had originally been doing at the Farber out at Amgen in Thousand Oaks. So here's a kid born in Worcester, raised in Central Mass, living at this point in Boston with, with a bunch of college buddies. And at the very least, I knew I was going to get a free plane ticket to Southern California. Um, and so I, I said, you know what, this would be a great opportunity. I, I thought, you know, I'll go check this out. Got on a plane, I flew out there, and I walked down, down the jetway. I saw palm trees, and I saw the Hollywood sign. And I, I remember calling my dad and saying, I don't think I'm coming back. And uh, it was great. <laughs> I went up, and I interviewed at Amgen and, uh, and never looked back. So this would have been um, a fast growth phase at Amgen. They had lots of open positions, I can imagine. Uh, what were they asking you to do? So I, I joined Amgen in the middle or early 1994. And I was originally working on, so we were talking about red cells and white cells. Amgen had uh, another idea. They obviously wanted to get to platelets. That was really the trinity of, of hematopoiesis. But there was another project that we were working on, which was, uh, which was a stem cell factor, or it ultimately became StemGen, which was an approach to really provide the progenitor cells for all of the lineages, red cells, white blood cells, platelets, so on and so forth. Uh, so I worked on an early program there, and then I transitioned over to uh, the platelet growth factor project. That was, that was a project I really wanted to work on. It was just some of the the, the best research, it was at early days, it was called MGDF or megakaryocyte growth and differentiation factor. Uh, but it was really, it was trying to get, you know, that, that trinity. We had, we had red cells, we had white cells, and now we were trying to get platelets. And if you could get that, then you were really, I mean, you could make an, a really important uh, impact on the lives of patients. Because if there was one remaining gap in that planned dose on time and intensive chemotherapy, it was platelet transfusions and, and delays caused by um, waiting for platelets to come back uh, before patients could get their next dose. Yeah, yeah, and it's still a very common side effect, thrombocytopenia. You see it, you see it Absolutely. quite frequently. So you're still doing clinical research, um, but how, how did you end up migrating to the business side of the house at Amgen? You know, I loved my time. I mean, it was great science, so many talented scientists that I was getting to interact with on the on the on the clinical side, but at the same time, I was also learning what it was like to be, you know, even on the clinical research side, learning what it was like to be at a public company. And so for a 20-something at that time, I was absolutely fascinated by all of it. And one day I was just, happened to walk by, this was, you know, prior to internal websites and all of those things, I was walking by a job board and I saw a job opening for an associate manager on the investor relations team. And basically, the job description was that they were looking for someone to help convey Amgen's scientific prospects to the street. And so I figured it was a long shot, given that I didn't know the difference between a, a balance sheet and a P&L, nor had I had any business experience beyond a, a paper route, which, which according to my dad, was, was questionable. Um, 
I applied for the job and I had to interview with the CEO, the CFO, the head of investor relations, uh, head of, uh, the head of R&D, and I ended up getting the job. And to this day, that really remains the foundation of, of my career today. What I learned in that investor relations role, um, I think really formed my interest in business leadership and, and, and making decisions and, and how I've looked at things going forward. Why was that such an important experience? Well, I had, I mean, right from the very first day when I, when I, when I took the job in investor relations, I had immediate exposure to the C-suite. So I was able to see how decisions were being made on a daily basis, whether they were strategic decisions, research decisions, financial decisions, all of it really funneled into the CEO at the time, and that was, was, was Gordon Binder. I don't know if you remember, remember Gordon, but he was a, he was a finance guy from, from Ford that George Rathman brought in to be CFO in the earliest days of Amgen. I think it was all the way back to, to 1982. And Gordon was not a scientist. As I mentioned, he was a, his, his entire uh, career up to that point had been uh, very, very heavily um, finance-focused. But he could walk into a room and bring some of the best scientists at Amgen. He could, he could stymie them with very, very simple questions. They would come in with a very difficult uh, research result or come in with um, uh, you know, a problem that needed to be addressed. And he would just cut right to the chase and ask a simple question like, well, why did we do it this way? Or is there another way to do something? I mean, he just cut right through almost to a very common sense level. And I was always surprised that after 40 minutes of a you know, heavily, uh, heavy science presentation, he could just cut right through it and, and get to the crux of an issue just by asking some very simple questions. So he, 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 he really got people to think away from the dogma of everything that we had known about uh, proteins up to that point, um, you know, looking at recombinant human proteins and just because you could make a protein didn't mean you should and were we focused on the right things. Um, and so I, I just always, that really became the basis for how I looked at other management teams uh, when I went forward in, into a Wall Street career. But while I was at Amgen, the other thing that I, I really admired about Gordon was he paid close attention to the financials, even when we were consistently exceeding expectations. Uh, he was very, very focused on making sure that the company never got ahead of itself in terms of expenses and, and just always managed the company uh, as if we were, you know, we were skimming the treetops in terms of the balance sheet. He was, uh, he was, he was uh, very good about that. And then I think lastly, he, as big as Amgen became in the, 19, in the 1990s, he always paid close attention to the employees. He ate in the cafeteria almost every day, and he was obsessed. And I always admired this. We'd be on planes, and we'd be flying all around the world, and he was obsessed with making sure people loved working at Amgen. And let me tell you, we did. I mean, he focused on every aspect of what it meant to come and be at Amgen on a workday. The internal aspects of management were, um, were important to him, it sounds like. But in investor relations, you are externally focused to a large degree. You're also interfacing with the street. And you're, so you're, a lot of smart people 
asking a lot of questions. I mean, I guess it would have been good to be at Amgen in those days because the stock was <laughs> a rocket ship. I mean, <laughs> but um, what, what did you learn from those interactions? Yeah, that, you know, not every day was, you know, was the rocket ship. If you remember back in the 1990s, there were, there were reimbursement issues with, with Epigen. Uh, there were a number of things that were going on with health and, health and human services in terms of trying to limit the reimbursement for Epigen in the end-stage renal disease program. Uh, you had competitors coming at us from, from all angles. Uh, there were a number of uh, intellectual property lawsuits that were going on. And I think that was just purely a function. The Genetics Institute IP battle was a big one. Yeah, the early days of TKT. Yeah. Uh, if you remember that. Ironically, I, I work with Mike Hartline now. He's, uh, he's our chief scientific officer here. We have, we have a good laugh about that. But, but really, I mean, so I, I really learned to interact with a lot of the Wall Street analysts, analysts and investors at that time. And it really, really helped me understand how, at least back then, analysts and investors were making uh, uh, investment decisions. And it was completely different back then. There was, you know, real deep understanding of the financial models. Uh, people would really, really dig in and, and create these incredibly elaborate epigen and nupigen forecast models. Uh, there was, a, you know, a very deep understanding of the, you know, the, the molecular biology behind these. We would have good, long conversations with the analysts and, and the investors on on, uh, on a number of these topics. And I got to be right in the middle of that while that was all going on. And that was just, for me, it was great and just got me thinking about, that's really what got me thinking about Wall Street. And, you know, I, was, I would hear some of the questions. And as I became more familiar with what was going on at Amgen, Amgen sent me to business school. I got my MBA. So I did ultimately learn what the difference was between a balance sheet and a P&L and went into more of a financial analyst role at Amgen. And ultimately, that was what really got me interested in going to Wall Street. Yeah, so let's talk just briefly about that. You make a couple different stops as, a, as an analyst, I think. Uh, what, was, uh, what, what additional perspective did you gain from being on that, that other side of the business? In terms of going to Wall Street, you know, I, 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 right out of the gate, I left Amgen. I had the opportunity to go work with one of the best healthcare teams on the street at Bear Stearns. On the biotech side, that was led by, uh, by a guy named David Malawa, who had also come from the industry. He was a, a Merck researcher who had done a lot of HIV research in the early days. And David was just a, a terrific analyst, would dig deep, as associates made us dig deep. Um, but, but I was you know, coming at this from a non-scientific angle. So I wasn't spending too much time on analyzing post-translational modifications of hot targets, nor was I counting high-throughput robots, robots at every company. I was really focused on, you know, why was Gilead buying Triangle? You know, what was Genzyme going to get out of Geltex, Biogen and IDEC, Amgen and Immunex? So on the M&A front, I was always trying to understand the thinking behind some of these transactions. Uh, I would also, you know, try to spend time thinking about companies who, you know, maybe were dealt a really tough hand and how they dug out of that versus companies who, might have been dealt a great hand, uh, but continued to drive the company into the ground. And so those were all, you know, for me, management decisions and uh, something that I was really interested in. And that was, I, I think, a, a, a fair amount of how I approached uh, equity research during, during my time on the street. 
you know, this is also um, a humbling experience. You know, you talk to anybody who does this for any period of time, and uh, you can be right about the science and right about the company, but wrong on the stock um, for a long time. And uh, that that can be tough to deal with. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I had I had you know chances where you know I was I, I was asked to go on national TV. We'd have you know often have opportunities to go on CNBC, and I won't name the stock, but I had an opportunity to really go on and, and pound the table on a on a on a stock that I felt very strongly about. Um, I mean, I was really excited excited about the opportunity to get on TV and talk about it, and two days later uh, had a had a had a just a, a terrible FDA issue, and uh, the stock was down about forty five percent within forty eight hours of of me pounding the table on it on TV. So. Yes, very, very humbling. Very humbling. Yeah, you just get sick to your stomach. I mean, you make a recommendation, you believe in it, and then a lot of people lose money. They're yeah, not happy about it. <laughs> a punch in the stomach is a is a very good a very good analogy. That's that's exactly how you feel about it. So you end up um, you get this broadening experience. So you 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 learn kind of the business from the ground up at Amgen. I mean, a really good set of experiences. Then you you cast a wider net and you see companies going through different kinds of strategic issues. Uh, and then then what you get the bug to uh, to go at a, back into the business uh, at a smaller company. Now this would have. But but was this Identix or was there something else in between? Yeah, so on my so my, on my first rollback, I came back as a chief financial officer, a CFO at a company called Carex, and the attraction to to Carex was a little bit of a big long circle, almost a three hundred and sixty degree uh, loop. When I was hired out of undergrad, when I was hired out, hired out of college to go work at Dana Farber, that breast cancer clinic was being run by a guy named uh, Dr. Craig Henderson. Uh, Craig was a very, and is a very famous, well-known, world-renowned breast cancer oncologist. Uh, he was at the Farber, left, went out to uh, UCSF, and then I think he did a, he did a couple of stints uh, running some, some biotechnology companies for a while, and then went back to, uh, went back to UCSF. Uh, Craig happened to be the chief uh, medical officer at Carrick's at the time, and so when I was thinking about coming back to the industry, I had some good conversations with Craig and decided to go back to Carrick's. At that time, it was based in, in New York. So I was pretty familiar with the, with the Boston to, to New York commute. Uh, but uh, after about a year at Carrick's, uh, I decided to look for something that was uh, a little bit closer to home back up, up here in Cambridge. Uh-huh. By this time, you've got a family, I, I take it. Yeah, at this point, I, 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 there, were, there were two sons at home. Uh, one, was, uh, one was about six years old, and the other one was about two years old. And, uh, and the, you know, the, the Monday to Friday reverse commute to New York was, uh, was getting a little trying for everyone. And um, I, I really wanted to have more time to, to be at home on a daily basis instead of just on the weekends. Oh, so as an analyst, you're working in New York, um, but your family's still back in Massachusetts. Yeah, for the most part. The, the nice thing was when I got to J.P. Morgan, J.P. Morgan actually set me up with a, with a great office up in, uh, up in Boston. And so we had the team, we had my associates and, uh, and the team uh, up in Boston. Uh, but I, you know, I was still going to New York pretty regularly 
not only did I have an office down there, but obviously that's where a number of the clients are. And as a, as a, as a sell sider, you're, you're spending a lot of time on airplanes anyway. Okay. Okay. So uh, you go to Carex, your CFO there for about a year. How do you end up going to Identix, uh, drug developer for hepatitis C? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was just a, a coincidence of events. I was really starting to think about, you know, trying to find something that was closer to home. Obviously, it was, it was still the early days of the, the, the biotech boom in Kendall Square. But I had also known uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Somadosi, who was the CEO of Identix at the time. Uh, we had covered Identix at, at, at a couple of points over the years. So I, I knew the story pretty well. And it was a company that had launched a new drug in hepatitis B and was really, at that point, out on the out on the in, in a leadership position in terms of looking at hepatitis C and the role that nucleosides would play in that that arena and um, they had an announcement that a, a CFO that was there had moved on to another company and uh, uh, Jean Pierre gave me a call and asked me if I had any interest in uh, in thinking about the CFO role at, at Identix and that was really uh, the end of that I, I I went and I looked at it and uh, it was something. I was very interested in. Uh, it was at that time fifty six percent owned by Novartis, so it was it was just a really solid situation uh, that uh, that I was uh, I was I was looking at and evaluating, and uh, it was close to home, so it it checked all the boxes. Today's sponsor is PVD Biotech. As your drug development advances it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech or to schedule a meeting at the upcoming J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, visit www.ppdbiotech.com slash longrun. I'll say that one more time. www.ppdbiotech.com slash longrun. A lot of, um, I guess Vertex was out there talking a lot about hepatitis C. Um, maybe some other companies were making some noise. Um, this was starting to get uh, to be an exciting area. It, it absolutely was. And I joined in 2007, and, and no sooner did I get there, you know, we had some, some, some initial big setbacks very, very early on, which, you know, again, were also gut checks in terms of, you know the difficulty of developing drugs in general, but let alone in in the in the race to develop a combination therapy, not to just treat HCV, but to to cure it. And so, you know, when I got there in two thousand and seven, that was really just we were starting to ascend the the very steep part of the HC, HCV curve in terms of the intensity of every company putting resources, human and financial, at winning this race in HCV. And I think. At Identix, we had launched the drug in HPV. So not only did we successfully make it through clinical development, but we launched it. It was on the market in, in Europe and the U.S., and we were 
we were co-marketing that with, with Novartis. Uh, and so we, we really felt good about our place in coming along with, with HCV. And I think the initial approach was to uh, approach it with a combination therapy. So our expertise was in nucleosides. Uh, we were looking at common, combining those with uh, non-nukes, protease inhibitors, NS5A inhibitors. Uh, so we, we were trying probably initially to do a little bit too much, but we were really, really basing all of that around our expertise in uh, nucleosides and nucleotide prodrugs. With that many companies and that many people focused on the exact same thing, uh, the, 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 the competition was just in, insanely intense. It, it really did pick up. I remember following this one as a journalist, and uh, uh, I mean, the excitement was just really palpable. There was, you know, 35 or 40 percent response rate with the existing uh, PEG interferon and um, ribavirin, uh, but most people weren't even getting it because the side effects were so long and nasty. <laughs> um, and suddenly there's this cocktail approach, a, a little bit like HIV, that you know, people thought maybe this will be uh, the way uh, to, to turn this into, I mean, to basically wipe this thing out or render it um, irrelevant. You're right. And if you remember, there were a lot of very entrenched dogmatic views at the time. There were some people that believed protease inhibitors were going to be the be-all, end-all. Protease inhibitors plus interferon therapy. There were some people that believed no matter what you did, interferon therapy was not going to go away. Uh, there were other folks that didn't believe that nucleosides or nucleotide prodrugs were going to have a role to play in the cocktail to treat uh, HCV. There were just so many different entrenched views on this. Um, and, and it was just amazing to see how at the end, you know, we cut through with um, some pretty innovative thinking. I don't think anyone believed that, you know, in... 2007, 2008, 2009, that HCV could be cured with 12 weeks of therapy, or in some cases, even less than that. Um, but nonetheless, we got there. And uh, that was, I think, the result of some good decisions by, by, by a few companies, some very, very brave decisions. You ended up, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you uh, ended up being promoted to CEO uh, the last, say, what was this, three or four years yeah, two, 2010 before, and then the company was, was sold in 2014. Okay, yeah. So this was uh, very much uh, when when all this stuff was happening, and you know, it's your neck on the line. You got to make a lot of these strategic decisions um, on the the best information that you've got at the time, both internally and and what you see in the external world. Uh, this thing works out um, pretty well. You get acquired by Merck. $3.9 billion in 2014. Now what? <laughs> what, what, what did you think uh, you wanted to do next? Yeah, so that, you know, that stretch between 2010 and 2014 was, was, was pretty interesting. You know, we, we, we really refocused the company, and that was also really where you know, I, I kind of leaned back on my time at Amgen and the amount of attention that Gordon Binder focused on employees and if I think about the team that we had at Identix at the time, that was really a team effort to, to turn that company around, really get focused on developing some very potent nucleosides, nucleotide prodrugs, and getting us to a place that we could be very competitive in the, in the HCV space. And so the Merck sale happened. 
I took some time off after that. I hung out a lot with my family, as you can imagine. Uh, it was a busy time for, for quite a long time before that sale happened. Um, that was the summer of 2014. So, you know, it was great. I got to spend a lot of time with my family. Uh, but the kids went back to school, and uh, my wife wasn't going to put up with, with me racing to be the first in line to pick the kids up at school every day or cleaning the garage two to three times per week. And so I started to spend a, a good amount of time talking to, uh, talking to you know, a handful of uh, venture capital folks about ideas. And I knew I wanted to do something that was really in the building mode, really not quite a startup, but something that we could, we could build and I could really you know, put my hands on versus you know, more of that turnaround situation. And I ended up spending a good amount of time with uh, Jean-Francois Formula, JF, at, uh, at Atlas. He had founded this company with Jeannie Lee from, from Mass General called Rana Therapeutics, uh, which was targeting long non-coding RNA. Jeannie had a, a very strong you know, view that long non-coding RNA, which a lot of people had referred to as junk RNA or, or uh, just what it says, non-coding RNA, didn't do anything. But uh, she looked at that differently. She believed it played a, a very prominent role in regulating gene expression. company was looking for a new CEO. It was a great opportunity to, to build, had very attractive science. So for me, it was what I was looking to do as a, uh, as a, as a next step. And yet, uh, this is pretty early science. I mean, where you had been before, um, you could argue that the way forward was it, there were there were great debates, but um, you you could see like that antiviral activity in the preclinical models, and uh, you know it was a matter of putting these things together the right way. Uh, here, um, wow! I mean, you're talking about small molecules, I guess, against targets that nobody's even aimed at before that are next to genes uh, to try to control expression, right? No, you're right. It was, it was, I mean, it was brand new science. I mean, some of this work had, had only been, you know, been pioneered within the last, you know, five to 10 years. I mean, a lot of this came out of, uh, out of Dr. Jeannie Lee's lab at, at Mass General. Um, and, and really what we were looking at is the interaction of these long non-coding RNAs and the polycomb repressor complex. And could you, you know, could you, um, uh, you know, basically take these short single-stranded oligonucleotides and basically almost throw a monkey wrench into that into that interaction and de-repress genes have have a, a significant impact on on gene regulation. And it was it was great science. I mean, look, and 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 again, as 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 someone who's not a scientist, Luke, it's still as as deep science as it is and as early as it as it is or was. Um, it still comes down to, you know, you look at data, can you, can you see, you know, are there good in vitro, good in vivo models? Can you see gene upregulation? Is it doing what it's doing? And a lot of times for me, is, is it science that I can explain to somebody in five minutes or less? And so it, it did. I mean, I spent a lot of time with Jeannie trying to understand the science, and it was pretty clear to me how this was supposed to work. Um, but I think pretty early on in, in, in taking over, Rana, I, I realized pretty quick, as, as great as the science is, and Jeannie won a Lurie Prize for this. I mean, this is, I mean, it is very, very elegant science. It was going to take us a little bit longer than we had anticipated to get a drug out of it than, than I think our investors were, uh, were, were hoping. Yeah, well, you, you raise an important point, which I might want to come back to later about 
you know, how important it is to be a scientist or not <laughs> in this kind of role. I, I happen to think that you know, it can be helpful in certain situations to have that full scientific training. But actually, if you, if you take the time to learn the basic concepts and have this knack for asking the important questions... I mean, in a CEO role, you're not doing the science yourself anyway <laughs> on a day-to-day basis. Other people are. But what's important is, is uh, bringing that clarity of focus. Um, I, I think that's Kind of like correct. Gordon Biner did. Yeah. And it's people. I mean, this, is a, this biotechnology, drug development, drug discovery, innovative approaches to developing therapeutics, it, it comes down to people. There's no one person in any organization that... That, that drives it to, uh, you know, to, to some natural end. It's, it's a team of great people, and I think leadership is about identifying those, those right people and then providing them with the right, the right resources to, uh, to be as successful as they possibly can be. But you, so uh, you're the CEO, you're this still small team, you're immersing yourself in the science with Jeannie so that you understand the concepts and where you're at. Uh, and by the way, the company was Rana Therapeutics. This is always a funny thing. I remember, you know, you were, had to introduce yourself as Ron Renaud from Rana Therapeutics. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a bit of a that was a bit of a struggle. I can't tell you how many people wanted to know if the company was named after me, and I would have to explain that it was a play. First of all, on RNA, um, but second of all, the company was was named before I got there by uh, by uh, JF and Jeannie. And people couldn't pronounce the name either, so you, you had to come to figure out what to do about that later. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so okay, so you you come to this conclusion that how no matter how elegant the science is here, this is still uh, going to take a lo- lot longer and a lot more money than maybe the investors want. So right. you you come to a strategic fork in the road. Um, maybe it's time to pivot or restart or. Or do something different. What would? How did you? Would you describe your thinking about that moment? Yeah, I mean, I think you just nailed it right there. We were really thinking about, okay, do we continue to invest in this platform? I had very, very good investors, a very, a very flexible board. Uh, you know, we were willing to, uh, you know, keep taking a look at this and hope that that something was going to pan out. But, but the thing that I challenged to, the, I challenged the scientists to do was get us to a place where we can make a decision on whether or not the path we're on right now is going to bear fruit sooner or later. And we, we, we really challenged ourselves to run those experiments, and we determined that it was going to take us a little bit longer. And so we started to think about, okay, we have a good balance sheet here for a private company. We're still relatively small. We can pivot. And we started to think about other RNA approaches, other messenger RNA approaches. How could we uh, uh, fortify the platform uh, with something that would allow us to uh, have an impact on gene regulation. And so we started to think of everything. It was early days of CRISPR. Could we come up with our own CRISPR approach? Should we be talking to CRISPR players? We were looking at uh, other ways to leverage our expertise with oligonucleotides. So, of course, we were looking at the very, very broad landscape of approaches with oligos. And right around that time was when uh, Shire and Baxalta were getting together and Shire clearly had a lot on its plate with, uh, with that transaction, and we were aware of a messenger RNA platform, it was called MRT at the time, that was inside of, of Shire, and uh, 
in 2016, we, we began to have discussions with Shire about uh, potentially trying to uh, acquire that platform outside of Shire. It was originally built, that whole messenger RNA platform, which at that point in 2016 was already eight years old. I mean, so this was a well-established, deep, deep messenger RNA uh, effort that had been, for the most part, stealth inside of Shire. Uh, we ultimately ended up negotiating with Shire for almost half of 2016 and in the end uh, culminating in, in us uh, uh, acquiring the entire platform, the people, the intellectual property, everything, um, and, and moving forward, which ultimately became the basis of what is now Translate Bio. Now, a couple years earlier, people had started to hear about messenger RNAs as therapies themselves. Uh, Moderna had been out there raising a crazy amount of money and getting some attention for this. Um, there are a couple companies in Germany, uh, BioNTech and CureVac, a little bit lesser known. But the people in the know in the pharma industry were starting to think, you know, maybe messenger RNAs themselves can be made into therapies uh, instead of going all the way and, you know, making uh, protein drugs. It's a pretty, pretty exciting concept. It, it really is, Luke. I mean, this wasn't an idea that was conceived of only, you know, four or five years ago. This wasn't a couple of, you know, a couple of folks sitting around and saying, let's, let's come up with a company to make uh, a messenger RNA as a, as a therapeutic. I mean, Shire was working on this, like I said, 10 years ago. And then there was a group at Scripps going all the way back to 1992 that actually, I, I think, is one of the first indications of the therapeutic approach where they took vasopressin, messenger RNA, injected it directly into the hypothalamus of these Brattleboro rats, which are, uh, it's a rat model that's incapable of, of producing vasopressin, and, and therefore they develop diabetes insipidus. And they saw a temporary reversal by injecting this messenger RNA into the hypothalamus. They saw a temporary reversal of uh, of the diabetes insipidus um, came back after you know after a number of days, but um, you know really this is this is not a a new concept. This is this has actually been decades in the making. No, but people had long lingering questions about um, would there be too much immunogenicity? But would the immune system recognize these things as foreign and and knock them out? Um, or maybe they wouldn't be delivered. Um, there, there had to be some, some delivery vehicle created to get them inside cells, right? A absolutely. I mean, the issues that were back then are, are some of the same issues that I think are, are confronting a lot of folks working in the space today. I mean, if you look at some of those papers back in the early 90s, they were concerned about stability of the messenger RNA. Could you make these messenger RNAs potent enough? Absolutely. Immunogenicity is always going to be uh, you know, kind of a cloud that floats over all nucleic acid uh, approaches. Um, and then, you know, how could you, how can you deliver these? How can you manufacture these? So a, a number of these approaches. And that was when, when our CSO, Mike Hartline, uh, you know, incubated this platform inside of Shire going back to 2008. These were all of the, the key uh, challenges that, you know, he said right out of the gate would have to be addressed, not something that you could address down the road. So for us, having you know uh, a ten-year head start, or at least a five-year head start on a number of other companies, I think has really, really helped us in terms of you know where we are today, being the first messenger RNA to the clinic in a genetic disease, uh, in cystic fibrosis, 
uh, and then another program, another liver-targeted program, hopefully right on, right on the heels of that. Well, let's talk a bit about this uh, acquisition. So you're Rana Therapeutics, you're a small, privately held company. As you say, you've raised a good amount of money, so you're able to, and apparently, you know, this this goes through some kind of portfolio review at Shire and Bexalta, uh, and, and uh, it needs a new home. Yes, and that's, you know, basically, you know, the Shire model had, has, had really been around, um, you know, bringing important therapeutics, especially in the rare disease space, uh, you know, whether it was through acquisition, there had always been some level of, of R&D there, but this was a really uh, er, much earlier stage R&D program inside of, inside of Shire. And so as, as, as you know, cost synergies are, are, are trying to be attained, uh, you know, this was a, a good opportunity for Rana Therapeutics at the time. And so we had a number of conversations with the MRT team, and that, as I mentioned, culminated in, in us putting the in us acquiring the assets, and then ultimately putting the two groups together. And it was it was a good fit because we had focused on messenger RNA. It was a different uh, a different approach in terms of we were using oligos and they're using messenger RNA, but nonetheless, there wasn't a significant ramp up in terms of trying to understand that platform or them trying to understand our platform. So you, you bring these people in, you've got all the intellectual property. Um, how, uh, why cystic fibrosis as the um, leading indication? So this was a leading indication that was, was started inside of Shire. So think about Shire's focus on rare diseases. Uh, and if you think about being able to deliver to the lung or being able to de- deliver to the liver, you start to think about good monogenic targets, good one gene, uh, one phenotype type situations. And so cystic fibrosis, you know, appeared to be something that Shire could leverage with what they believed at the time was a very good approach to delivering messenger RNA to the lung. And so after a number of years of refining the lung delivery technology, it just seemed to make sense that uh, delivering a, a full-length messenger RNA for CFTR was, uh, was a, a very, very good opportunity. And so it was really you know, a focus on trying to correct the underlying defect of the disease by, by, by putting the corrected CFTR in. And so this was something that was, um, uh, was of high interest inside of, inside of Shire. Now, the, the big story in cystic fibrosis the last five years has been with Vertex and its small molecules, um, first Kaleidico, and, and now they've continued to build on that um, in, uh, with small molecules for distinct um, genetic subpopulations of CF. But this idea here at Translate Bio is deliver the messenger RNA for making of a full, properly functioning copy of the CFTR gene directly to the lungs. So this really ought to work for all patients with CF, right? Correct. So it's basically we have a, a vibrating mesh nebulizer. We have a proprietary formulation, a delivery formulation that encapsulates the corrected uh, CFTR messenger RNA and this is designed to treat all patients with CF, regardless of the genetic mutation, 
even in those patients with little or, or no CFTR protein at all. And as you point out, there have been terrific advances in the CF space over the last decade. If we look at what's happened, if you look at the statistics in terms of survival, you know, the impact of what's happened in the last decade uh, has yet to be appreciated, but I'm sure it's going to be uh, a very noticeable impact uh, as, as we continue to move forward. But our approach here is pan-mutational, and as I mentioned, it's, it's designed to treat all patients with CF. And so this is something where ultimately we get down the road and we have a package insert for this program. What we would like it to say is MRT 5005 for the treatment of patients with uh, cystic fibrosis. Period. None Period. of this G551D or, you know, F508DEL. <laughs> No, but I mean, it's, you know, again, it's, you know, that, that we hope will make it convenient for, for patients if we can make it agnostic to, you know, to all of these genetic mutations. But we don't want to minimize at all the importance of what's happened in the, in the modulator space. Because if you, if you talk to patients, they are so thankful for the advances and the amount of attention that's being paid to um, continue to advance and, and move programs forward. But we also talk to KOLs and we talk to patients. And as thankful and as grateful as they are for uh, the great work that's been done out there in the modulator space, they're, they're, they, they believe that there's so much more that could be done and they want more. And so uh, we're, we're, we're very, very hopeful for our program. Let's come back to this delivery question, because when you talk about a nebulizer, uh, you know, you're trying to deliver this messenger RNA to the lungs. I mean, lungs are a big organ. There's a lot of complexity there. Uh, what gives you confidence that you're able to get it there in the kind of the, the, the distribution that you need? Yes, the healthy lungs are a very complex organ. And so think about trying to deliver messenger RNA across a cystic fibrosis lung that's got this mesh of, of thick mucus that, you know, is, is, is enclosed and there's a lot of pores. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of chemistry going on there. And so we've designed our delivery vehicle, our, our LNP or our lipid nanoparticle from a physical chemical perspective to be able to traverse that mucus, to be mucopenetrant as, as we called it, uh, both in terms of charge, in terms of size. And what gives us confidence is we've got some preclinical research that shows in a rat model where the CFTR gene has been knocked out they develop these uh, mucosal plugs in the nose and in the airway. And we see uh, changes in nasal potential difference when we apply our messenger RNA to those, to those nodules. We've also seen in wild-type models in both rodents and non-human primates an ability to, for, for monkeys and for rodents to inhale our MRT 5005, have it good, go all the way down the respiratory tract, get into the lungs, and generate a significant amount of protein, not only at the top of the lung, but in the deep lung. We see anywhere from 200 to upwards of 15 to 1600 times endogenous protein uh, with inhaled messenger RNA. So this is, this is something we're really, really excited about. Uh, we're in the clinic right now. It's still early days for us, but um, you know, we're, we're, we're hopeful that what we've seen preclinically will, will bear out in the, uh, in the clinical trials. So this has been a, a 10-year work in progress, dating back to the Shire group. Mike Hartline was overseeing. Uh, you're now in your first clinical trial. Um, you're looking at things like 
uh, whether this uh, your your delivery is able to get across the mucus, uh, whether it gets into the cells, and and ultimately, are are you looking at clinical measurements like FEV one? You know, a measure of your ability to breathe effectively. Sure, it's a phase one two safety and tolerability study. So our primary focus here, given that no other company has ever delivered messenger RNA encoding CFTR to the lungs of, of, of patients with cystic fibrosis. So this is real groundbreaking work here. And so we, we have to assess safety and tolerability first. So think of it much like a, a, you know, a, a novel gene therapy approach. So it's, it's, gonna be, it's gonna be a bit slower as we, as we manage all of the, uh, the safety parameters that we wanna collect. But to answer your question, yes, we will be looking at FEV1. We will be looking at pulmonary exacerbations. We'll be looking at a few other things. The study is designed in a single ascending dose way, and then we'll move to a multiple ascending dose. And then we've got a last cohort of patients where we'll look at our two most active doses. And what we're gonna do is work with uh, pulmonologists and, and, and CF experts to do uh, deep lung potential differences We'll also try to measure messenger RNA and protein from those deep lung uh, bronchoscopies as well. And so that'll really establish what we hope is, is, is true uh, proof of concept, given that in the cystic fibrosis space, there's not a, a good biomarker as we, like we think about other, other rare diseases. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there any key learnings here from the viral vector gene therapy experience? Because, you know, I know that CF was high on the list early days uh, as a single, as a monogenic disease, and, and it just never worked out with uh, viral vector delivery to the lungs. It, it's a good question, and there's been some terrific work that's been done there. I think Genzyme had done some work in the very early days. Uh, there's another group uh, over in the UK the, in the CF consortium over there that has done some extensive work delivering DNA plasmids by AAV to, to the lung. And what's interesting there is, you know, with, with, with LNP delivery, they were able to demonstrate very consistently that they could traverse the lung, uh, that, that thick, dry mucus uh, on, on, on CF patients' lungs. What it did once it got to the, to the, to the cells of the lung, uh, it, it, it's tough to know. I mean, if you think about the difference between gene therapy or DNA versus messenger RNA is... DNA, you've got to get to the nucleus, and you get to let the nucleus machinery take over, go out to the to the cytoplasm, and then and then let the ribosomal machinery take over. For messenger RNA, we just need to get across the cell membrane. The LNP then releases the the cargo, the messenger RNA cargo, and the ribosomal machinery takes over. And so, you know, that makes this a very convenient therapy in terms of uh, being able to dose up, be able to dose down. Uh, and, and really titrate the right amount of, of protein as, as we move along. So, so operationally, I mean, you alluded to earlier um, all kinds of company building stuff that you learned at Amgen and, and, and at Identix, the importance of people. I mean, this year has been a, a, a big news uh, cycle for your company. You, um, you went into the clinic for the first time. You went public, raised something like $113 million, I think, uh, you moved your headquarters out to uh, Lexington from uh, Cambridge. Why did you do that? Yeah, so I, I think if 
when, when we did, so first of all, when we did the original acquisition of the MRT team out of the Shire, they were still based in a, uh, in, in, in a building that was just up off of the, the Shire campus in Lexington. And then we had a group of people that were still down in Cambridge. And clearly, you know, for a company that was still relatively small, we wanted to make sure that we had everybody under one roof. Uh, as, as the crow flies, it might have been 11 miles, but geographically that may have been, you know, that, that was probably the equivalent of, of an office here and an office in London. It was just, uh, from an integration perspective, it wasn't, it wasn't helpful at all. And so we began to look at space, and what we really also wanted to focus on was our own standalone space, try to bring down the cost of rent, as you, everybody knows what's going on in terms of rent expense in, in Kendall Square, and so we started to think about, you know, Lexington as a, as a good opportunity and a space came available up here. It was one that was, was known to us, was we were familiar with. Um, and so it was, and it was the right size. It was, you know, from a cost perspective, it allowed us to move in. We got in pretty quickly um, and have built, you know, what we believe is a state-of-the-art messenger RNA R&D facility. And so, you know, we, we were able to integrate everybody see what we have, see what we needed in terms of skill sets. Um, and, you know, we've really spent the la- better part of the last 18 months doing just that. And that integration, Luke, was exactly, that was the genesis of Translate Bio also. Because if you think about it, we had a Shire team joining a Rana team. And what we were really trying to do was, uh, you know, build on our experience with messenger RNA and, and Translate seemed to be, Translate Bio seemed to be the right name. And fitting for what we were all doing here. I remember saying when you made that change, I was surprised that name wasn't taken because <laughs> so many <laughs> companies are at that stage of trying to translate a discovery into a therapy. Yeah, the, the, the process of, of, of naming a company, could you could do a podcast on just that uh, alone. I mean, it's amazing how many names that you look at. And um, it, it was a fun process. We had a lot of good laughs. There were some, some crazy names that came across the transom, but... Um, but uh, we ended up on, on Translate, and uh, we're, we're happy with that. We're, we're proud of our name. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a great feeling, too. I think, you know, again, getting everybody under one roof, it really, really changed the culture. Culture is a big thing for us, but it really, really changed the culture for us almost overnight, getting everybody under one roof. Well, you can actually, you know, walk down the hall and talk to people as opposed to sending them an email. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, we're, 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 we're big on that. We're big on face-to-face here. We're, we're big on, you know, we, we, you know, we spend time once, you know, once a week, the whole company gets together and, and has lunch. Uh, you'll appreciate this. We have a running club. Uh, we do that every, every Wednesday morning. It seems to get bigger by the week. Um, and so, yeah, it's, um, that was something that was very difficult to do, do as, as, as two separate buildings. We're in a biotech boom. And it's good for a lot of things. You can go public. You can raise a lot of money. Um, extends your runway. That's great. Uh, but there's some downsides too, like uh, the cost of operating in Cambridge and traffic. You've alluded to, um, uh, and and like you got to find a way to retain people because they've got options. A lot of different companies they can go work at. Uh, how do you think about um, building a company? for, you know, to last um, in this kind of environment? That's a, that's a great question. And, and, you know, something I learned, you know, back in business school, I, I think a lot of folks like to spend time on strategy. And when, you, when you're going out and you're, you know, you're pitching, if you're private, you're pitching venture capitalists or you're pitching investors or when you're public, 
talking to institutional investors, you're always talking about strategy. But, um, you know, one of the things I learned early on is, is, is culture trumps everything. If you create a winning culture, if you create a, a culture that, you know, people come to work and you want to make each other look good, if you're thinking about the patients every single day, if you think about the fact that you come in the door, you sit down at the lab bench, you sit down in front of an Excel spreadsheet, um, you're, 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 you're building a market model or you're running a, you know, an assay in the back and you know that in some way, shape or form, you're, you're, you potentially are going to have, the, have an impact on the life of a patient. It's, it's, it's incredibly powerful. And we talk about patients here all the time. And I know a lot of companies do that. It's, that we're not unique in that. Um, but what I would just say is, is that we, we try to live it. We try to focus on it every single day. And we try to make sure it just doesn't become something that is, is, is commonplace. And so I think if you were to talk to anybody from Translate, and we have an, an exceptionally low turnover rate here, it's a culture of, of, of really doing the right thing and making sure uh, we make each other look good. Work is hard. You've got to come to work. It's, you know, it's as you point out, it's, um, we're public now. It, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of intensity. There's, you know, there's always timelines. We're, we're trying to move things quickly. There's the competitive landscape. But you can't get lost in the fact that uh, employ, employees really want to be here. They want to they, they wanna love the place they work. They want to be proud of it. And I think it's incumbent on leadership to make sure that happens. Because if we don't have a good employee base, if we don't have people who are really excited about coming to work every day, then we don't have a company. And I think having a company where it's, you know, where, where, where folks are, are just constantly pressured on timelines and constantly reminded of uh, market obligations and so on and so forth, I, I think you can, you can make some short-term gains there, but I don't think that's a, a way to run a business in the, uh, in the long term. Well, long term, I mean, what you're trying to do is come up with a inhalable CF drug for pe- people with this, um, you know, really debilitating, horrible lung disease. Uh, that would be quite an achievement. You're able to do that. Yeah, and I, I mean, and beyond that, where you know we've got a, a another plan to file an IND, hopefully by the end of this year, in ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency or OTC deficiency, uh, and so this is another completely different route of administration, a completely different disease. This is a, a urea cycle disorder where uh, you know young young newborns that are born with this can't clear ammonia out of the bloodstream unless they they get some type of chelation therapy, and if it's not caught soon enough. It can lead to incredible developmental disorders and, in, in the worst case, death. And there are some patients that live with a less severe form of it but could be treated later in life. And so that's something we're excited about. And I think, you know, for us, there's, there's a broad we, – we're excited – we're very, very excited about cystic fibrosis and OTC deficiency. But we're also equally as excited about our, our project with Sanofi Pasteur and developing vaccines for infectious disease. And we're looking at a number of other therapeutics in the eye – we're looking at others in the, in the lymphatic system, uh, in the central nervous system. So there's a lot of places for us to go, um, but we want to be very methodical in terms of picking targets and how to prosecute those targets. So I think success for us and, and excitement is, 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 is a broad range of opportunities. I mean, this is a logical extension off of, uh, you know, this long-running effort uh, to understand uh, the, the Human Genome Project. To to uh, to 
know what those genes do. And once you do that, you can make a whole lot of different messenger RNAs against a whole lot of rare diseases. Uh, a lot of novel um, treatments can come from this, really ought to, over the next several decades. Absolutely. And the, the messenger RNA space, I think, is it's, it's a great place to be right now. There's just a vast amount of white space. There's a number of competitors in the space, but it is by no means a uh, zero-sum game. There's not one winner that'll take all here. I think there's so much work that can be done here, and there's different approaches to messenger RNA that, you know, our view is that there won't be a lot of folks stepping on people's toes. And you still have, you know, you still have the challenges, right? We're, we talked about immunogenicity and stability and delivery, and then you got to be able to manufacture these things. And that's where I think, you know, the, the cream will rise to the top. And I think that's where the companies with the, the strongest experience and the most experience in those areas, I think, will, 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 will be successful. But um, we're, we're very hopeful for the whole overall messenger RNA, RNA space. I think there are going to be places for gene therapy, gene editing to play. There are places where gene therapy, gene editing are going to have a role to play. That one-and-done type approach to treating certain diseases is going to be critical. There's also going to be enzyme replacement approaches that are going to remain in place. They're, they're, there's, they probably can't be improved on. And so, and then in the middle of that, it's kind of like the central dogma is, is, is RNA, is messenger RNA. And I think that's where, again, just a vast amount of white space and uh, a lot of room for, um, for people to be very, very successful. Last thing I want to bring up here, Ron, is I looked at uh, your alma mater's website since I did know that you were on the board of trustees there at St. Anselm. Uh, and they say that our graduates will be ethical leaders and informed citizens who contribute to a more just community and world. Um, and, and, you know, I'm struck that, you know, here um, they invited you uh, as one of their alumnus, a, you know, a biopharmaceutical executive uh, to serve on their board. Not, you know, at a time when not a lot of biopharmaceutical executives are held in high esteem or thought of as in, in that same light. Um, what, what has that experience been like? Do people, do people get what you're trying to do? I, I think people definitely get what we're trying to do. And, and I think, you know, look, it's, I learned a lot at, you know, during my, my time at Idenix. And that was focus on what we're really good at. Focus on making sure that you have the right team, you have the right employees, and that they have the right resources to do the very, very best. And I think that's what we're trying to do here at Translate Bio. We're focused initially on cystic fibrosis. We've got OTC deficiency after that. Um, but if we continue to focus on what the patients need and the right way of doing that, no shortcuts, do the right studies, let the data drive all of our decisions, I, I, it's, it's, it's difficult to go wrong there. There will be, you know, we'll hit challenges. We'll hit stumbling blocks along the way. But as long as we stay steadfast to letting the data drive our decision-making, uh, I, we'll, I think we'll be in good shape. Well, Ron, it's been a great pleasure to talk with you today. Uh, thanks very much, and uh, best of luck with Translate Bio. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to PPD Biotech for sponsoring. And thanks to you for listening. See you next episode.